jump on the, on the message. Uh, for those of you that read Baptist Life, I just want to let you know there's a cool article inside of it uh, this month. Uh, that talks about our disaster relief program. And Donald's one of the featured articles in there about some of the cool work he's been doing with disaster relief with the tornadoes up north of here. So that's kind of a cool thing that God's doing. So thanks, Donald. It's cool that you got some recognition in Baptist Life. Give him a hand because that's pretty cool stuff. So if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to open it up. We're starting a new series. I want to tell you a little bit about our church and how we do series when we do message series. And so we're going to be going through the book of 1 John. If you're not familiar, it's in the New Testament. Um, if you're new to Christianity or you're checking out Christianity, you've never opened a Bible, listen, don't ever be ashamed to open to something in the front of the Bible called a table of contents. It's like another book. And you can actually find 1 John. Don't let anybody pick on you if you don't know where the books are. It's cool. Uh, if you've got a digital version of it, you just click on your app and you can follow along in 1 John. But we're going to get there in a second. We're going to be walking through this book over the next five weeks. We just finished uh, the book of Daniel, which was a lot of fun to walk through. When we do a book as a church, we like to try to help you to connect with God's heart deeper than any way that you can. So there's a couple tools that we're going to do. I'm going to put a URL a scanner up on the screen. I put a website. So if you scan this, this goes to our website. If you don't you have time to scan this, don't sweat it. You just go to our main website, gracecifer.org. And when you scroll down, you're going to find there's a link to this series. And you'll find two things that might interest you if you're wanting to get into this book. One is a reading plan. So you can join the reading plan and read through 1 John as a church together as we go through the book. So that's going to get you deeper into this book. The other thing you'll find is you'll find two Bible studies there if you want to get into a Bible study. Uh, both of them are through something called Right Now Media, which you can get also the link there. And when you connect there, you'll be able to do a couple things. Um, if you like ladies sitting around a coffee table talking about something, you'll like that Bible study because that's one of the Bible studies, okay? So for you ladies that like to gab... You'll like that one. There's another one that's more of a kind of a Bible college kind of format where a guy's lecturing through some of the deeper components. And that one's not only good for group if you want to do it in group, but if you're not connected to group, you can actually just watch that on your own or listen to it at your commute to work. One more way to take you deeper into this book. So let's get into this book because it is going to be a fun book to walk through. So this was written by the Apostle John. And one of the things I, I like to to do when we're going to do a book is tell you a little bit about the book and its context. Now, there are some scholars that say we don't know who the book was written by. So let me walk you through how some of that gets done sometimes within Bible circles. So the book is what's known as anonymous, okay? All that means is John didn't put his name to it when he wrote it. So it'd be like me writing to you and just not putting my name to it. Hey, I wanted to write to somebody. I wrote to this group of people. I didn't put my name on it. What scholars sometimes confuse, I think, is they'll say, because this is anonymous, John didn't put his name on it saying, I, John, write to you at this point to this people this way. Since he didn't say that, they'll say, it's anonymous, and then they'll say, so therefore we don't know who wrote it. But what they do when they do that is they completely discount there's this whole historical background. Every early church father, known as the patristic fathers, the ones that come right after the apostles, all of them unanimously said, hey, that dude, John, you know, the, the, the guy that wrote the gospel, he wrote this one and he wrote Revelation. So that's how we know that it was written by John. So when you hear someone say it's an anonymous letter, it's true. We also don't know who John's target was in this case, but we knew that the dude camped out in a place called Ephesus. So, all right, so we know it's not the battery. There you go. So okay, we, were, we were playing with some audio stuff this morning. I'm trying to figure out how it works. But, so we know that John wrote it. We don't know the specific group of people, but more than likely it was a group of people known as Asia Minor, like in the Turkey area. 
okay? And there were several churches around that area, and John probably was thinking of these churches in a larger, a larger portion of how he wanted to write to them. And so, so it was written to them. We do know what the purpose of the book is just by reading this letter, because John's very specific in what he's trying to teach us and what he's trying to write about. He was actually trying to correct false teaching. And you'll see his term inside the book. He'll talk about antichrists, plural, or little antichrist. He'll say that all throughout this book. But what he's saying is he's trying to correct teaching. And what's most interesting was it wasn't that they had a teaching that was a lot of times directly in contrast to what John was teaching, is they thought that they had to correct the biblical narrative by making it more intellectually acceptable to their culture. Because if you don't think about the Greeks in that area, they were uber smart. They were like philosophers. And a lot of these folks were trying to make the Bible and what John was writing, they were saying, look, we need to correct that and take it to a higher level as far as its philosophy. And what John was doing is he was trying to correct their false teaching. And I love William Barclay. If you ever get William Barclay's commentary, he's always rich. He's always a good commentator. Let me just read to you what William Barclay says about this book. He says this, the trouble which first John seeks to combat came not from people who were out to destroy the Christian faith, but from those who thought they were improving it. And that's a caution for us today. It came from people whose aim was to make Christianity intellectually acceptable. If you're a Bible student, the, the, the people he's actually referring to back then were ones called Gnostics. And it comes from a root word which means knowledge. And what was happening was they said, we have this secret knowledge. It's a knowledge that only we have. And we're smart. And we're smarter than the average Joe. We're smarter than the average person. We're smarter than the blue-collar dude or the blue-collar lady. And what we're going to do is you need to come to us to get the truth of who God really is. That's what was happening. And John's like, nope, I'm a fisherman and I'm going to set you straight because I hung out with Jesus. That's what this book is. I hung out with him for three and a half years. I know him better than you do because I watched him, saw him, ate with him, lived with him, and shared in his ministry. And he's going to combat essentially their intellectual stuff, what the world was telling them was right by saying, no, you just need to spend some more time with Jesus. So let's open this book, and I'm going to walk right through just First uh, John, the first chapter with you. And the first thing I want to show you in verses 1 through 4 is this. John is trying to show you what is known as his apostolic authority. And I'm going to walk through 1 through 4 and show you why. So the first thing that John is trying to show you is as an apostle, he has authority that is unique and specific to his office within the church. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, he's talking about the movement of Jesus, which we've heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked at with our hands um, have, and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, or, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So, so let me just walk through why this is so important and why John is saying this text, not only this, this tone not only then, but for us today. Have you ever thought about where do you derive your authority from when it comes to spiritual stuff? Does it come from the pastor? Does it come from a denomination? 
Does it come from a certain church or movement that you were a part of? Does it come from a scholar that you're connected to? Like, where do you actually say, this is how I think this is authoritative. This is why this matters. Maybe it comes from your background, your experience, your upbringing. All those things collectively are part of who we are. And what John is saying from the right beginning is, no, no, no. You need to derive your authority from Scripture. And specifically, I as the apostle am writing to you what is now known as Scripture. Why is this important? It doesn't come from a bishop. It doesn't come from the pope. It doesn't come from the pastor. Authority comes from the Bible and the Bible alone. How do I know that? Well, what scriptures do you think John was reading when he was coming up? He was reading all of the Old Testament, the prophets, right? He was reading what we call the first five books of the Bible, right? He was reading these things and he was deriving the heart of God. And then he spent time with the living word, which is Jesus. And he saw reflected in Jesus's life, everything that Jesus did, all the things he read about in the Old Testament, the word now made flesh, as he says in his gospel. And as he's hanging out with him, he's saying, this is authority. And as he writes to you as an apostle, he's putting into what we call scripture, something that we can grab onto and understand. You'll see that in a second as he shares it with you. Let me tell you what's so important about this and why this is important. The people that John was combating had never met Jesus. They were philosophizing about Jesus. They were arguing about Jesus. They had all these interesting ideas, but they never spent actual time with Jesus. Confession. I don't know about you, but I've not met the risen Lord physically. Anybody here done that? If so, we, we, we have a psychiatrist for you. Okay. So reality is I've not met the risen Lord physically. I haven't, but I have experienced him. I've grabbed hold of his life. I've felt his presence and experienced him in a very tangible way, but I have not physically seen him. I'll, I'll get that one day when I draw my last breath. So when Paul, when, when Paul and the apostles and John and those that spent time with Jesus, Peter and James, make these statements and they put them in a letter for us, they're writing in such a way that says, I've seen him, I've touched him. And so therefore, I have an authority that you don't have. I don't have it either. But when I read that authority and I connect it with my spiritual experience, I'm able to share in the apostles' understanding. So keep going down to verse three. We we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Do you see it? So we proclaim this to you in the scriptures. You're now having fellowship with the same Jesus that we have fellowship with. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So, So John is saying, when I proclaim this to you, when I share this with you, you're now sharing in what the early church called apostolic teaching. What the church wanted to do when you read, anybody ever memorize any of the confessions of the church? Anybody memorize the Apostles' Creed? Okay, come on, my former Methodist, Catholics, Episcopals. I know you're there, okay? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Okay, you, you can rattle off as fast as I can, right? Do you know why that was given to the church? It was given to the church because most of the church was illiterate back then. And they would memorize the confessions so that they could understand the apostles' teaching. But now you and I have the fullness of the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, in the scriptures. And so when we embrace that and we embrace that confession that's in the scriptures, we're connecting with the same fellowship with Christ that John had. It it brings us into 
oneness. So when I preach, I preach what I've heard and I preach what I've experienced. I'm preaching from the scriptures, so it's connected to, to the apostles' authority, and then it is confirmed through my experience. And when I preach that and teach that and you embrace that and you actually experience Christ in a new way today, not only is your joy complete, but John says his is as well. Look at that in verse four. We write this to make our joy complete. It's amazing. And it's all centered around the Bible, who people now in the world and we live in want to question or denigrate. But when we connect to it and we keep the Bible at high authority, it begins to do something not only in us and through us, but around us and the people that we're connected to. Here at our church, we love to talk about something called the win. And so we have three W's you'll learn about today. It's called the word, the win, and the wrestle. We think they're interrelated and connected in a lot of cool ways. But if you've been around church for a long time, the win is a fancy word for something that's old. We used to call a testimony. Y'all ever heard of that? You have a testimony, okay. Well, the win is when you begin to share your testimony. Now, here's the problem with most testimonies, and here's the problem with most wins when we look at this idea of what, what John is sharing here. We think that when we share a win, we say, oh, you know what? My kid hit a home run today in Little League. Win. That's your win. That's your kid's win. It was not God's win. Are you connecting with that? Or, hey, you know what? My car wouldn't start this morning, and then we messed with it a little bit, prayed over it, and it started. Win. No. A win and a testimony connected to the fellowship of the apostles' teaching, sharing the joy of having fellowship with God, is when you see God accomplish something around you. And you go, look what God did. He did that right there. That was God. And he not only did it there, but he did it in me. That's a win. That's the kind of wins you're looking for. Because those wins we can't take credit for. And that's what gives us mutual fellowship with one another. And that's what he's trying to talk about at this beginning. I want you to share in this kind of fellowship, this kind of joy, not a joy that's about you, but about the movement of God and what God is doing all around you. So here's a question as you begin to ponder this first point. Has the light of Christ that he's describing here, that he calls fellowship, which we're going to talk about more, has it pierced you yet? Has it changed your very thinking and the way that you live and act? If it hasn't, this next part for you is going to be very convicting. Because look at what he says. He talks about light fellowship is what he talks about this next section of five through seven. I'm not talking about light like, yeah, it's kind of light, you know, it's not kind of deep. It's fellowship with the light. And he begins to talk about this fellowship that we have with the light of God that comes through not only his teaching and writing this letter, but through direct connection with the Father and the Son. You see, our concept of fellowship is flawed, church. Our concept of fellowship is this, Right? Uh, well, who's bringing the food, right? And who's bringing the lemonade? And uh, who's bringing the snacks? And I'll admit to you, I've, I've messed this up in my life, okay? We had a small group at our house one time, and we had an opening in the group. And uh, the people weren't cooking real good stuff, just to be honest with you. They were bringing just stuff they picked up at Sam's, which is not good for group. I went homemade stuff. So we had a new gal who was going to join our group and her husband. And I, I called him up. My wife, I thought, was going to kill me for this. And I said, hey, the reason we kicked the last couple out of the group is because they brought crappy food. And I just want you to know, when you come this Monday, and she, had a, she has a dairy farm, or not, she has a cow farm, like they have it for meat. I said, bring one of those homemade beef pot pies you make, because 
that'll get you in the group and he won't kick you out next week. And so I didn't tell anybody in the group. They showed up and I actually took a couple of slices, put them in the fridge. So not, I had them for later. And my wife found out later and she gave me a tongue wagon. I mean, she let me, I can't believe you did that. And I'm like, yeah, but we set the right tone. Well, that's not fellowship, okay? And that's not the fellowship that God's talking about. The fellowship that God's talking about looks like this. And I'm gonna describe it at the shallow level and then try to go deeper with you. The fellowship that God's describing through John in this text is if you ever get on a plane and you sit next to a person and you don't know anything about them, and the next thing you know, you begin to get a sense. I think this person's a Christian. I think they share the same conviction about faith as me. And it's almost immediate through just a little bit of connection that you begin to sense this. This is the light that John is talking about. There's this mutual fellowship based on our faith that immediately connects you. Look at the verse, verse five. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not have, and we do not live by the truth. This is the deeper fellowship he's talking about that comes through the teaching. Walking with Jesus, experiencing Jesus, understanding Jesus through the scriptures. It comes through what we call the practices of our faith. When you begin to have a daily quiet time with him and you spend time with him in prayer. When he talks about the darkness, what is he talking about? Now, there's some scholars that when they read this think that he's talking to two different groups of people. I don't think so. I think John's pretty simple. Y'all think John's a simple dude? I think he's pretty simple. I don't think he's getting complicated. I think he's telling us within the one body that he's writing to and the group of people he's writing to, there's people that walk in the light right now in this room, and there's people that are walking in the, in the same room. In Christianity, in our churches, everywhere, both exist and outside the church. And when he's talking about those that walk in the darkness, he's talking about those that break with integrity with walking with the word. So in other words, the Bible describes certain ways of living, certain ways of walking, certain ways of fellowshipping with God. And those that walk in a different way walk in darkness. I love this out of the Bible knowledge commentary. It's pretty cool. It says, Christians sometimes feign spirituality while engaging in acts of disobedience. So in other words, we put up, y'all have seen this, right? The stained glass masquerade. We put out the show as Christians for people, but behind the scenes, we don't walk in alignment with the word. We know what the word has taught us, but we refuse to walk inside of it. We recently were doing an ordination of a gentleman who's about to plant in Cambridge. And uh, if you all know uh, Pastor Rich down, um, Richard down in Salisbury, cool church called Canvas, uh, Richard uh, said, made a statement. I'm like, Richard, that's tweetable. I need to grab it before I lose it because, you know, I'm ADHD. It'll go away fast. And so I grabbed it real quick. And I'm like, gosh, this is the same thing. Richard said to this guy who was trying to teach him about walking with integrity, he says, don't offer good advice with an unclean heart. So, ooh, that's good. I got to grab that. That's essentially the same thing that's happened in this text. Don't, don't, as Christians, say one thing when we know our heart is unclean and has not been washed with the blood of Jesus on that issue. Then he says in seven, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, he's talking about Christ, we have fellowship with one another. You see it? This is the connection. This is the deeper part. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Did you know that early Christians weren't called Christians? Does anybody know what early Christians were called 
before they were called Christians. They were called followers of the way. And the reason they were called followers of the way before they were called Christian actually was a, it was supposed to be a slam. People would look at him like, gosh, you're like little Jesuses. They would piss people off. They were like, all you ever do is what he did. Don't you have a mind of your own? That's how that came about. And they said, you're just little Christians. You're little Christs. That's the word Christian. But before that, they were called followers of the way. And the reason they were called followers of the way is they were so modeling what it meant to walk in the light. Like Jesus walked in the light. People said, that's a follower of the way. Look at the way they walk. Look at the way they talk. Look at what they do with their time. Look at what they do with their money. Look at how they live their life. That's a follower of the way. So the way that we've tried to prescribe that for a church is this way. We have what are called the habits. Habits are disciplines. They're just trying to teach you what it means to walk in the light and connect with the light. Disciplines and habits help to connect you to the light. They're not the light themselves. But one of the things we talk about here a lot is the hang time, a quiet time. That you would rise every day at some point, you'd spend time in God's word and devotion, and you'd spend time in prayer with him. When you do that, you're walking in the light. The light is piercing your world and your darkness. The other habit we talk about is having accountability, which is where we let other people, like he's talking about in this fellowship, talk into our lives. People that have the ability to correct us, to tell us when we're off the rails, to tell us maybe when we're shifting away and maybe walking toward the darkness in our life. The way we prescribe this in your groups and your hangouts is just share the wind, the word, and the wrestle. What do I mean? If you're in the word every day, I'm going to guarantee you something. God will speak to you. If you're in the word, God will speak to you. I guarantee it. But he doesn't speak to you for you yourself. He wants you to share it with another person. That's the word. So when you get together with your friends, you're hanging out, you're having coffee, whatever it is, whatever your group looks like, share one of the words that God gave you. That's what it means to share the word. Share one thing God did in your life around you. You saw God, you sensed God. He did this. That's a win. And then when you share the wrestle, which we'll get to in a second, that's when you begin to share about what's actually in your life that's out of alignment that really needs to be fixed. Now, let me get real with you on this for a second. Is when we talk about these what we're talking about is areas where we don't align with the word, which the Bible calls sin. And when you sense that, and the Holy Spirit gives that to you, you're going to have a conviction, which then drives you toward changing the direction of your life. When that happens, you begin to sense what God's doing. This happens all the time, not just in church, not just in group, in every aspect and dimension of your life. One of my wins recently, and the, the couple's here, so I won't pick on them, was um, we were same candidate we were talking to. I asked him, uh, new pastor, new pastors make a lot of mistakes. It's okay. We let them make mistakes. And I asked them what the difference between evangelism and mission was because they had made, articulated those in their write-up. And they said, well, you know, evangelism is when you personally share the good news and missions when you, you know, take people out and do it. And I said, well, I don't know about you, but when I read Jesus, I can't distinguish it. He was always 100% time on mission. And he was 100% time sharing about the good news, which is what evangelism is, right? And so recently, we, we, we had a couple, we had, had to get a new vet. I won't point them out, our new vet's here today. Uh, we didn't like our vet. My wife didn't like our vet because they were putting our pig to sleep, and it was getting up goofy and doing weird things. Okay, they were drugging our pig and then clipping it and clipping its, you know, tusks and all that good stuff. And so we wanted to find somebody who was a little bit more savvy and didn't have to do that. So we found this couple, uh, found them through a relationship. They come out, they come out to the farm, and I love them. First of all, the dude flipped the pig over, which I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Did y'all know you can flip a pig? Okay, I didn't grow up with pigs, okay? 
I know about cows. And no, you can't tip them. Okay, but he flipped the pig, okay? And then he got on the pig's chest, which was hilarious. And all the pig was doing was like, freaking out, okay? Because they're on there, they got a neck that doesn't move. You know, they got no neck. And then their legs are flipping everywhere. And then that way, uh, the vet, she could actually work on the pig. But when they were done, we fellowship. We hung out. We hung out at the picnic table. And guess what we learned as we began to share in fellowship? We had a shared common faith, a background. Also some church hurt. I don't know if you've had that before. A lot of us have if we've been in church for a while. And there was a mutual fellowship. It was like that. And that's this idea that's in here, not only that John's talking about, but he's talking about this idea of light fellowship. You're fellowshipping not only with him in the light, but when you see the light in others. And you see that faith, and there's an immediate connection. That's what he's talking about. And if that's not something you've experienced, we need to look at what our faith really looks like. The third thing I think you can pull from this text that's very powerful is this. You need to look for the holier than thou that's around us the holier than thou. And you're going to see this in two different ways as you go through verses 8 through 10. He says very powerfully, and this is where the text goes from just talking about the light to really getting convicting for us. In verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let me just pause there for a second, because that's heavy. If you claim to be without sin... You deceive yourself and the truth's not in you. There's two areas, I think, in our culture, in the culture that John was dealing with when he's talking about this area of sin. One is the claim that something is no longer a sin that the scripture says is a sin. So the scripture says this is a sin, but culturally, our culture said it's not really that bad, it's not really a sin. So therefore, we claim it's not sin anymore, which then means if we believe that, we say I'm not a sinner on this area. I claim to be without sin. Another area, a little different, is those that just, and this happens, there's different movements in the Christian movement that say you can reach a plane or a point of existence where you're so close to God that you no longer sin. That, that's, that's what some people think. You've probably met those people, right? They look like the people that swallowed a, a gallon of prune juice, okay? And, they, and you're like, you're a Christian? Really? You're, you're a Christian? Okay. And they just have this holier-than-thou kind of attitude. Met them? Mm-hmm. Been wounded by them? Yeah, Okay. I think he's talking about both of these situations. I think he's talking about both of them. And they have different shades in between. Let me give you two areas. And if this stings a little, I'm not going to sting you to hurt you. I'm going to sting you so you can really see what it means to walk in the light and the darkness as John is describing it and how it's connected to this idea that if we claim that we don't have sin. In our world, one of the biggest areas this is going to be an issue is in the area of sexuality. It's a huge area. And in our world and in our area, we believe sometimes now that what God has described as the right way to have sex and, and have sexuality is no longer the right way. God said in the beginning he made them male and female, and, and, that, and that's it, okay? It's pretty simple. And they came together, and God performed the first union, and he said, this union is not only for you to understand fellowship with me, but also to have understanding what it has a fellowship with the world around you. It's It's integral. It, it's, it's very important. And what our culture has tried to do is say, is it really sin? And if you read enough scholars, you'll find one that will agree with your slant or your point of view. You just got to read enough. Then they'll start saying stuff like, well, is homosexuality really sin? I think the real sin that was back there was monogamy, not homosexuality. And they'll find a way to weave through that whole mess to tell you that homosexuality is not sin. Or they'll say, 
there's more than one gender or that you can transition between genders, okay? This is rampant in our culture. And when we listen to this and buy into this, we're being veered from the light to walk in the darkness. And it's very subtle and it comes, I'll give you another one. Let's talk about that. And I'm talking, right now I'm talking from one point of view. I'm gonna flip the coin on you a second. If you're feeling really good, you're gonna get stung on the opposite side. Just wait for it, okay? Let's take abortion. We know the scriptures are very clear on this issue, right? In the womb, God created us, right? He knit us together in our mother's womb, which means when does life begin? At conception, okay? We know this. By the way, that's not only a biblical concept, that's a science concept. I saw another post this week. I love watching Facebook posts. Y'all are goofy on Facebook. Uh, someone said, how come it is if we find a bacteria on Mars, we'll call it life, but we don't think a clump of cells here in a womb is not? That's pretty powerful about our view on this issue. And the darkness creeps in and it takes us off of the word. And the next thing you know, we're walking in darkness. And we didn't even know it. We didn't even know it because we've bought into something that's not from the word, that's not the light. Now, let me flip, let me flip it on you. This is, the, this is not a sin question. Let me flip you on the I'm not a sinner issue. There's a lot of us that, that have that, what's called the holiness movement, which believes I can walk in such a way I'm better than you. And I walk in the light and I walk in the light so well, I stand above you in my Christianity. And there's, there's people here that are like that. And don't worry about them because God is really good at humbling people. We learned about that in Daniel, right? That's his job. I don't have to humble them. God will do it, okay? You just pray for them. Pray for them. But let me come back to the sexual sin issue. It's easy for the church, think about this, to be so opposed to those that are in the LGBTQ community that they don't make this the most gracious place for them to come. They ostracize them. They push them away. They tell them they can't even be here. This happens. And we do that with such hypocrisy because I'm just gonna look at all of y'all for a second. I don't know about you, but I have sinned sexually. Jesus nailed me to the wall on this one when he says, if you look at a woman with in your eyes, which means I am not above you on this issue. As a married man, there are times in my life I've struggled here and my friends and people that hold me accountable remind me and bring me back into alignment with the word that says, no, 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 you gotta love your wife the way Christ loved the church, willing to give up everything for her, okay? They bring me back to that alignment, which means I have no right to sit in a superior arrogance over those that struggle in an area of sexual sin because guess what? I've got my own junk to deal with. I'm a sinner just like you, but I'm not gonna ignore the light. I'm not gonna ignore the word. And I'm gonna be honest about how, I get pulled sometimes. Let's talk about the one about abortion for a second. We love to talk about that and the sanctity of life, but those of us that think we're holier than thou at times, are you engaged in adoption? Are you engaged in the disadvantaged? Are you engaged with the disabled? Are you engaged with the elderly or those that are end of life situations? Because if we're not, we're committing a sin of omission. Because we're saying that life is sacred, but only life when it's within our political alignment, not when it's life about all life. Because God's all life is sacred. And there's some of you in here, I know that the reason you started adopting kids is because you believe in the sanctity of life. 
So what John is doing here, and it's, it's genius. I didn't see it until I read this book again. It's so cool when you read a book, right, and you read it again, you're like, gosh, there's something cool here I hadn't seen before. Is he saying, those of you that try to make sin not sin, mm-mm, you're not walking in the light. But by the way, those of you that try to stand over those that think that your sin doesn't stink as bad as theirs, you're not walking in the light either. And that's so powerful. And then when he looks, he gives us the solution in 9. He says, if we what? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And look what else he does. He purifies us from all unrighteousness. There's the light. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. At the very beginning, what John has done for you and I in this book is he gave us the good news. He gave us the gospel. Whether we're the person who knows that we're walking in sin, but we want to change that, or the person who at times has lived the holier-than-thou attitude and thinks that I don't need a Savior, but you absolutely need a Savior also, he's saying you both can come to Christ with confession. And when you confess your sin to him, he's faithful. He's good. He's just, he believes so much in dealing with your sin that he died for it. He was nailed to a cross and paid for your sin, paid for mine. Every thought, every idea, every, every uh, part of walking in darkness, he atoned for and paid for. And then he says, all you got to do is accept what I've done. When you accept what Christ has done, This wonderful thing happens, and I hope you've experienced this. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. And when he lives in you, he begins to convict you of wrongdoing. He does. Does it to me all the time. In fact, let me, let me, I'll give you a little confession. My wife knows this. A couple of my leaders know this. I always know when my heart's out of alignment because my prayer life changes. Let me tell you how it changes. (laughs) Hopefully it never changes at you. Because people frustrate me. Do they frustrate you? Okay, people. Okay, okay. It's normal. Okay, that's, that's people. And I start to pray for them. And instead of praying for their faith and their joy and that they would connect deeper with God's heart, that they would connect more intimately with him, that God would correct them, not me. Instead of praying that way, I start praying like more like David prayers. Lord, nuke them. You know, that's that kind of prayer. I start praying that way. And even for people I love and like, and I'm like, what's wrong with my prayer life? And as soon as it happens, I'm like, I need a vacation. I need to get grounded and get back in the Word, spend more time. It's a confession moment. And then I realize that's not the way Christ wants me. I guarantee you there's something this morning where you are. Either a perspective that the world has given you or, or just you need to lay down everything so that Jesus can live inside of you that needs to happen. In a moment, we're going to do that. But I want to explain this gospel to you, whether you receive the gospel here or you receive the good news later. It's very simple. You have to admit your sin. If you don't admit your sin before God and get honest and real about what's really going on, God can't deal with it. You've got to admit it. Be real with him. Put all of your belief and your trust and your hope in the light that has pierced the darkness, which is the person of Jesus. That when he came to earth, he lived the perfect life that we can't live. And because he lived that life, he now offers it to you. And here's the beautiful part. When you commit your life to his lordship and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you, God now lives within you. 
And you don't have to work hard anymore to please God. God will work to please himself through the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's the commitment God wants from you. And you'll be able to rest and walk in the light in a new way where you're not frustrated with the world around you. You're not combating with the world around you. You're simply resting and walking in the beauty and the goodness of who Jesus is and how he wants to live in you. If you've never done that, that's why you're here today. If you need to renew your faith, that's why you're here today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we set aside this moment thanking you for John's word in this first letter to a group of churches and people. We thank you that he didn't pull a punch. Thanking you that he talked about what it meant to walk in the light, to walk in holiness, God, but to how all of us struggle to be tempted to walk in darkness. And we walk in darkness, we, we destroy our fellowship with you. Father, I don't want to live that way, and there's been moments in my life I found myself on that dark path and didn't even know it, but your spirit spoke to me. He corrected me. He showed me that I was sinning, sometimes with what I did, but sometimes with what I didn't do. Father, this morning you want to do the same thing, not only in my life, but in every life of every person in this room. We want to give you a moment, Lord. Examine us, as David says, and if there's any way in us which falls short, Show it to us. Lord, show us our sin in this moment. We give you permission. Examine our heart. Show us where we fall short. Our Father, the the area that you just showed us, the picture that came to our mind, the word that came to us, we admit before you that that is our area of sin and that it keeps us not only from good fellowship with your light, but with those in the light around us. Father, we put our hope and our belief and our trust in the living word that Christ was made flesh, Lord, and that his life has been made known to us through the scriptures to the apostles' teaching. And because of what he's done, that he died for us, we accept with all of our heart that our sin is forgiven because of what Jesus did when he died for us. His blood covers over any sin we have committed and even will commit. And Lord, because of the graciousness and the goodness of what Christ has done, we now offer our lives to you. We commit our very path to you, our steps to you. And we ask that you, when we read your word, that you would guide us and show us every day through prayer and communion with your spirit, how you want us to live, not only with you, but with those around us in fellowship. And all God's people said, amen. If you prayed today, whether it was a renewal or a first-time commitment, uh, do me a favor. When you fill out your Connect card, which is in your bulletin, you can put it in the offering box on the way out. It's a little black box to the left of the door. Uh, For those of you that call Grace Your Home, I want to thank you also that you continue to support us financially. Uh, What you do makes a difference, and you can also put your offering there. If you're a first-time guest, don't worry about that unless God tells you to. Um, But um, that's where we usually put our offering. We don't take up an offering as a church. If God leads you to support this ministry, you can put it in that black box on the way out. Here's last week. I think they already put up, but... Uh, Let the light illuminate your path and confess your missteps. 
And I want to give you one step beyond this, and then we're going to, we're going to practice this in a second. Um, it's one thing to confess to God, and you should, but um, I love in the book of James that we're told to confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed. So if there's an area that you're still feeling anchored to, um, chained to, it's still having havoc in your life, an area of grief, an area of struggle, I want you to find one Christian friend or person that you're close with, tight with, that you know will love you and not judge you. And the area of sin that came to mind today, just one-on-one with them, confess it. And when you confess it, this is what I'm struggling with, ask them to pray out loud over you a promise that not only is it forgiven, but it's been dealt with in the person of Christ and taken away. I'm telling you that when you'll do that, the power of that sin in your life will be dispelled. It'll be removed. But that's why James says, hey, confess it to God, but also confess it to one another. Okay? And we're going to do something. We're going to move into a time of the Lord's table. 